A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and filmmaker, photographer, and artist Bruce LaBruce. In our earlier episode about 1977's queer cinema, we talked about how the abolition of the Hayes Code invited audiences to see the stories of people's lives they'd never seen before. For a brief window in the late 80s and early 90s, the door opened again and ushered in the new queer cinema movement. Now, Bruce, you made and starred in an influential film, among others, but this specific one is in 1991 called No Skin Off My Ass. Now, what was it about this period that was encouraging queer filmmakers not only to make movies, but also audiences to seek them out? Oh, um, I mean, one of my theories is, you know, that the gay and lesbian film festival circuit at the time, it was LGBT, it was, LGBT, mm-hmm. was exploding, uh, like in the late 80s and early 90s. So um, it, the wave was almost kind of fostered by these, you know, international uh, festivals. So they were, like every small town, like in America, practically, suddenly had a gay and lesbian <laughs> film festival. I went to many of them, like in Cleveland or in Rochester, or New York, or in obscure, uh, like some smaller cities. So, and then of course, you know, it was riding the whole wave of the AIDS epidemic, post-liberation, gay liberation, the kind of thrust of the gay lib movement was was still very much based on sexuality and like a strong sense of representing queer sex very um, unapologetically bordering on the pornographic. And um, and then, um, you know, the AIDS crisis, uh, which the cocktail wasn't didn't was unfortunately didn't come along uh, until 1995, which, you know, Jarman died in 94, which is so heartbreaking and but just that whole wave of, of act up and queer nation and and in the uk what was going on with the activism against section 28 and so it was like a weird convergence harmonious convergence of all these things produced um, the new queer cinema you also start to see this come into mainstream Hollywood as well, as they start to discuss and process it in their own way. You know, casting Tom Hanks, America's most lovable heterosexual in uh, Philadelphia, yeah. things like this, right? So there becomes this, like, uh, almost explanation of, like, you need to be on, this is the right side to be on, is what Hollywood is kind of telling Yeah, you. I mean, one of my favorite films of that era, I guess it was earlier, I can't remember exactly, I guess it was in the 80s, was Making Love the Arthur Hiller film with um, Michael Anke and Harry Hamlin and, and Kate Jackson. And uh, it, it was really the first big screen film it, made for TV movies, weirdly had addressed a lot uh, of, mm. of gay issues in the early seventies, like that certain summer uh, with uh, Hal Holbrook and, and Martin Sheen, but uh, making love was the first one that addressed, and it was just pre AIDS as well interesting mm-hmm. um it was quite controversial when it came out it, it's a very it's a melodrama but it's it's a great film yeah as you said philadelphia which of course you know is so problematic today because they, yeah. they barely mentioned yeah. that he like he was supposedly got aids from or hiv from having one blowjob in a dirty movie theater <laughs> it's like the sure. one yeah, the one mistake he made was one blow, and he got it from a. Bl- First of all, you can't even get it from a blow, you know. And and then yeah, it, they yeah. made it very clear it was very kind of moralistic in that sense, you know. That and then of course he's you know redeemed by the straight lawyer who's like slightly. Okay. So, you know, it's a problematic film. There's no physical intimacy between him and his partner yeah. either in throughout that film. Like they, they don't, they never hug, they never kiss. There's any of that, never any yeah. of that. And then when you watch a lot of these movies, um, especially from the new queer cinema movement, that's such an important oh, aspect yeah. of them is there is actual physicality and sexuality between these people. I mean, we're going to talk about it in both these films. You see sex yeah. scenes, which is, you know, kind of a big I part think of Jarman, it. it always intrigues me. You know, I think Jarman would have gone I'm curious if he would have gone more pornographic or less had he lived Mm. and and made more films. Um, Because he clearly, I mean, you know, Sebastian, which was made in in 76, uh, German Sebastian is, is almost like softcore porn. I mean, uh, you know, and the Roman scene with the Roman soldiers. And he, I I think he had a pornographic sensibility for sure. Um, but, you know, a lot of the great filmmakers always flirted or, or said in interviews that they wanted to make porn, like, or were curious about making porn, like Hitchcock <laughs> and and uh, 
I don't know who else, uh, uh, Verhoeven and, you know, yeah. but, but like I said, it was very much tied into queer activism. And that certainly is why I started making sexually explicit films was to be just very provocative in your face and unapologetic about queer sex. I mean, you know, we were still fighting the, the kind of liberal attitudes about, well, you know, it's fine with us as long as you don't flaunt it or as long as you don't throw it in our face, you know? So of course we flaunted it and threw it in their face. <laughs> How punk rock. Well, let's get into our first film today, because if Derek Jarman, as we have mentioned before, isn't already a name you are familiar with, it definitely should be. Uh, he was a raucous filmmaker with a punk rock aesthetic, and his film started as underground experimental darlings in the 70s and then rose to BBC prominence in the early 90s. Now, one of his most enduring films finds power and poignancy in modern life through the classic work by Christopher Marlowe. Now, Bruce, you wrote about Edward II for the Blu-ray release by Film Movement. Now, what about this movie speaks to you now and what it, what spoke to you then? I mean, when I rewatched it, I saw it when it came out, but when I rewatched it, it I was so, you know, taken aback that it that it's kind of timeless. I mean, it's it's just, it hasn't aged mm-hmm. at all. Um, it, like I was saying, uh, the, this idea of uh, one, one of my strategies is queering, you know, um, uh, in my cinema. So taking... Um, the homosexual subtext of, of either classic or, um, or mainstream work and, and totally like bringing it to the forefront, um, kind of making it text, you know, uh, rather than subtext. So I did that with No Skin Off My Ass, which came out in 91, which is a remake of Robert Altman's That Cold Day in the Park, and which has a kind of, mm-hmm. it's based on a novel by uh, Richard Miles, which is much more gay and camp, but uh, Robert Alban kind of like made it more heterosexual, although there's still the subtext of the hustler. And and then I, I, I re-queered it. That's what, uh, same, kind of same what uh, uh, Jarman did with Edward II, because the Christopher Marlowe play from the, from the 16th century is, uh, late 16th century is, is queer. I mean, in many ways, I mean, it's, the subtext isn't, yeah. it isn't, it's barely subtext. I mean, you know, and, and, yeah, but yeah. he made it, of course, way more provocative and way more punk. And, you know, his use of anachronisms and grafting it onto modern activism uh, with the, uh, I forget the name of the, the activist group. Outrage. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, that was, that's brilliant. I love the, he kind of tur- turns Edward and Gaveston into like the Cray brothers almost, or like, you know, mm-hmm. I love his use of anachronism. Uh, it really kind of, um, again, helps to bring out the latent subtext of the original, uh, queer subtext of the original and, and graft it onto modern political uh, issues uh, queer involving um, discrimination against homosexuality. Yeah. There's such an interesting uh, article that was written by um, The Guardian when this was re-released where they basically, they referred to this as reductive in taking this play that had all these complex uh, political aspects of it and reduced it to, you don't like my boyfriend. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, mm-hmm. um, I think you might be missing the point. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. just perhaps. Yeah. If he does reduce it, then he kind of, he kind of like makes it, extrapolates it uh, to include so many issues. So when you have the king, you know, mm-hmm. um, new king, the the, the son, uh, who's a little boy, you know, that character is so subversive. The fact that he's in drag, the fact that, you know, uh, the kind of anti-fascist mes- mm-hmm. message of the movie, that he's in drag and he's like watching a scrum of naked rugby players, you know, this little boy <laughs> in drag. I mean, it, it's so provocative and so complex in it in its queer act, uh, kind of activism that I think that that's the whole point I mean he did maybe reduce the original to its basic elements in order to make a very complex complex kind of political statement of his own you know totally and I think like what you brought up before like it's always important to recontextualize uh, the existence of section 28 which at the time you know it, it's essentially to modernize it it's the kind of the equivalent of the Russian laws you weren't allowed to like promote homosexuality as a public institution in the United Kingdom uh, so you know just and I like like connecting to your work as well this is less about recontextualizing and more, showing you that the previous recontextualizations were wrong. It is more going back to the source material and saying it was always yeah. gay. <laughs> like you were yeah. ignoring the. And, I mean, are those elements of the original that interesting today anyway? I mean, 
you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. it, that's getting into the minutia yeah. of kind of like, uh, what he's doing is drawing on, like making parallels between the kind of, you know, fascism and of the, the historical period and today uh, and the contemporary UK in the early nineties. I mean, he's, he's really drawing like historical parallels and saying that nothing really has changed in terms of like, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the fascist, uh, uh, you know, the, the promotion of heteronormativity, er, the enforcement of heteronormativity and, and the marginalized groups being, being discriminated against. I mean, it's always been there and it never really went away. Now, before we get any further into this, for people who have not yet seen Edward II, for some reason, it is very available and easy to watch. Uh, thank goodness. Unlike many other films that we will discuss. Um, Bruce, can you just give us a quick plot summary about what this film is about? Well, I mean, uh, it's basically about Ginger uh, King at the time, uh, Edward. Uh, I call the relationship between him and Gaveston gin-cest. It's the hottest, it's the hottest <laughs> gin-cest scene ever committed to celluloid. He he has an, an Earl becomes kind of he becomes very fond of, and they become you know de facto uh, or kind of uh, in the original. I guess it's more subtextual but they become lovers and he meanwhile edward is married to isabella the queen of uh france which was a kind of a a, a marriage of convenience to kind of bind the two countries together politically and she conspires with i forget the name of the the character she conspires with but the one played by nigel terry Terry, mortimer yeah more she conspires with him to bring down the king and meanwhile, the, uh, you know, all the earls and barons are totally who appear as this kind of weird, almost like a corporate kind of like board, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're uh, appalled by his relationship with Gaveston. And, you know, Edward is forced to exile uh, Gaveston and then Gaveston comes back and they are reunited. And then finally, um, Mortimer and Isabella conspire to kill uh, Gaveston, and then Edward is killed again, uh, killed as well at the end. At the very end, the son of Edward usurps the throne from Gaveston and Isabella, and he's the queenie kid at the end, has them in jail underneath him. Yeah, so that's the basic story. And of course, you know, Annie Lennox is in it. She sings a Cole Porter song uh, every time we say goodbye. More outing and queering of someone who famously said, I'm not gay, I'm not gay. And you're like, uh uh-huh, Cole Porter, keep <laughs> right, talking. Right, exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. That, that's why the Guardian um, article becomes more ridiculous because there's so many sub-layers of contemporary kind mm. of queer politics and politics in general uh, woven, woven into the yeah. in, into the movie. And Christopher Marlowe himself, a lot of his plays deal with homoeroticism and homosexuality. He's a bit of a mysterious figure, but it's pretty easy to be like, he, he was probably gay, or at least like obsessed with queer romance yeah, and entanglement. Yeah. Exactly. And as per a lot of uh, Derek German stuff, this is very um, sexually provocative. There are a number of, like the very opening scene is you're watching uh, Gaveston and uh, and Edward. In bed with not, not one not two, but three hustlers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Very happy sailors having a great time. Yeah. Um, and and this isn't even as provocative as he wanted it to be. Like he wanted the two actors who who play uh, Edward and Gaveston are straight. Yeah. And he wanted the actors to be physically fucking on the throne. And this was not a boundary these two actors were willing to cross. Plus, I think because his money was coming from television at this point, it just wasn't so- mm. a boundary he could push uh, in order to get it distributed or seen. As We'll talk about your own difficulties getting things distributed that had um, any sort of provocative sexual material in them. But this is also a movie that has uh, graphic torture scenes that are extremely difficult to watch. Like, it's it's pretty... Intense. Well, it's very kinky. And, you know, sometimes the, the kinkiness, mm. especially with regard to the church, you know, and the the scene where high-ranking member of the, of the church who tries to get Gavinson expelled, mm. he takes his head and, like, forces him to give, I guess... Archbishop, uh, yeah, he's a, ba- bishop. He's a bishop yeah. of some kind. Um, pushes it against his cro- uh, crotch, takes out his false teeth, and like does the stations of the cross with the false teeth. When Gaveston is expelled from the kingdom, uh, there's a line of higher, uh, you know, officials in the in the church spitting on him, you know, 
which is a kind of weirdly kinky scene as well. Um, it's a it's a gauntlet of spitting, you know, on him together with the kink of, of the the young king and uh, with the cross dressing and everything. It, it, you don't need to show explicit films, uh, explicit sex uh, to make mm-hmm. it like in, incredibly provocative. And those kinds of kinky elements uh, make it even uh, kind of more transgressive, I think. Mm-hmm. This alone was Section 28. Cam, do you happen to know how this was received within the British public? Uh, I mean, I, I think at this point, German was like fairly canonized as like at least an artistic filmmaker. I have to assume Joe on the street maybe was not <laughs> lining up for Edward II, but I think generally it was actually quite well received uh, because, you know, he, he had made his way uh, through, you know, he's, this is kind of the second or third almost decade of his filmmaking and work in film. And like you say, Bruce, it's, it is almost tamer than some of his mm-hmm. earlier stuff in certain ways. It is more of a traditional presentation of a Christopher Marlowe play uh, than some of his other work. Yeah, certainly. The, it's, I think it's faithful to the text of the original. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think it, its provocations are are subtler in a way that I, I don't. At least I, I didn't see any. There weren't more protests outside of theaters, and you know, popes rending their garments and things. About well, that. also, Jarman was quite a, very well known in England because he directed a lot of music videos, mm. you know, for the Pet Shop Boys and and um, Marianne Faithful and Suede and. And the Smiths, and you know, so he was a he was a real pop icon as well in the UK. So I, I imagine that 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 gave his films even a higher profile. Yeah, and I I think that there's also it's worth saying that he uh, he had just gotten over a pretty horrible boat with tuberculosis while making the garden, and people really thought that he was going to pass away. So this movie was quite a surprise. And I think people really rallied to give him a better budget and kind of see. And he says, you know, some of the pared down nature of this film was just because he was so deep uh, in his HIV diagnosis that he just needed to do something a bit smaller. But I do think that there's he was so open about uh, his diagnosis. And uh, I think that there was a respect, at least in the arts community and film community, and I think in public uh, he was also a guy that loved to debate. <laughs> so I think if anybody didn't like the movie, he would probably show up and, yeah. and ask you why. Yeah, he said something about how he became he became his own cause. Like he he became, you know, because of <laughs> uh, of his because of AIDS, and uh, you know, he 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 really be, and because of his activism, uh, he became like a cause in in himself. You know, um, but you know. He, he was already exploring these themes, like with uh, the Pet Shop Boys video, It's a Sin, which I think came out in 1987, mm-hmm. which is about the Inquisition. And, you know, uh, it has a lot of imagery that kind of pops up in Edward II. But um, but also, I mean, this is one maybe earmark of queer uh, new queer cinema as well, is that there often is limited resources or was to make these films, you know. Um, uh, mm-hmm. People had to do, um, and, you know, Queens are really good at making like lavish things out of like <laughs> out of nothing, you know, out of uh, whatever they have lying around and make it look fabulous, you know. And that's the same with, I mean, Young Soul Rebels as well. Is just is you know, for the budget that he had. It's a, it's such an ambitious film, and and I think Edward the Second comes off as an ambitious film too because mm-hmm. you know the set pieces, just the 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 way it's photographed. Um, just the scope of the film, even though it was shot in, in one location, and he somehow, you know, I mean, he started out as an art, art director, obviously, or production designer for Ken Russell. So his films are like insanely well um, done in terms of the production design and everything. And he he knew how to make uh, no budget work, as did Isaac. Isaac. Yeah. When he worked, uh, we have actually talked about The Devils and a number of Ken Russell films previously, because how do you not talk about that man? He's fascinating. And, oh, the maniac. The fact that The the Devils seemed like it was um, especially a particularly problematic film, but it comes off extremely well. It's dealing with very similar kind of things that this is, a sort of repression. And uh, you got your kink, you got your camp, you got a bunch going on with a bunch of nuns. Please go back and listen to that episode. It's really good. Um, But, like, you definitely see the sparsity there that you do here as he's creating 
these sort of like darkened institutions, whereas in The Devils, everything is bright and well lit. Everything here is dark with like very specific lighting. It seems like this would actually be played really well back to back with The Devils as a great mm-hmm. double feature. Yeah, it would. All of, all of his films are remarkably, you know, uh, visual in terms of like The Garden, for example, like his films that are, you know, I break his films down into kind of two categories, the more kind of like experimental formalist ones where he uses a lot of super aid and like the angelic conversation and, and the garden and, and war Korean and, and then the more kind of narrative and historical narrative films like Caravaggio and Wittgenstein and Edward II. But the thing that kind of unites them is that kind of really strong uh, visual sense but the more formalist experimental ones are much more baroque in a way like they're they're very uh he uses a lot of overdetermined imagery kind of like um almost like collage and and it's very like a visual experience and the historical dramas he kind of like pairs down to very kind of simple mm-hmm. kind of sets and um and set pieces do you think that has something to do with budget? Yeah. <laughs> like the fact that you can't have these big lavish castles and things. Yeah, and, you know. but I would I would also say that it, it weirdly, at least in the case of Edward II, uh, it suits Christopher Marlowe's style, who is famous for having, like if you read the play, staging directions or entrances and exits. Sometimes it says this man is holding a piece right. of bread or something, but right, it's nothing. Right. So it, it was famously one that people have struggled with trying to stage Christopher Marlowe, like Dr. Faustus, sometimes he'll say, like, an angel appears, and you have to figure it out. And sometimes he'll just say nothing. And he let it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, he did it. But I also like uh, another part of this film I like that I think goes back to the text and goes back to kind of Jarman as self-advocate and new queer cinema is that these guys kind of suck. Like, these are not <laughs> Gavison and Edward II. Uh, I think that there is a lot of joy, especially in the end of the, this movie, as you say, with the young, you know, queer boy, kind of a hopeful look at the future. But this is also just like a great look at kind of, you know, everybody knows it when you're trying to like find family and find relationships, you can get stuck in a gross, toxic one. Gaviston does not seem like a good person. It's kind of understandable why people don't want him around. And yet, you know, it's not worth killing someone over. So I think he's really confronting people with like, you know, I think a lot of the new queer cinema is like queer people don't have to be good. They don't have to be a nice example. This does not have to be capital R representation, but you oh, yeah. need to respect. Yeah, it was much more unvarnished. There was much more uh, ambivalence and sexual identity was more fluid, which makes Young Soul Rebels and Edward II seem so contemporary today mm-hmm. is the way that, that with the flu- fluidity of, of sexual identity. And, and it's amazing that these two films are made in the same year. And, even more amazing that Young Soul Rebels was heavily influenced by Jubilee, yeah. by you know German's Jubilee. I love in Young Soul Rebels were the, the the two main black actors. The one that you kind of expect to be gay is mm-hmm. is actually straight, and the one that you <laughs> expect to be yeah. straight is gay. It's like a reversal expectation, and, and in Edward the Second as well. Yeah. He, uh, he he plays around with like Gavison actually has that scene with with Tilda Swinton where he he kisses her but in a very and kind of like comes on to her but in a very kind of malevolent mm-hmm. kind of way you know uh but it is playing around a lot with gender and, and identity well and, even the women who are in this film the androgyny I mean that's two of our most iconic androgynous performers Annie Lennox and Tilda Swinton you know I mean add Grace Jones mm-hmm. in the mix and there's three of the top you <laughs> yeah, know late yeah. 80s to early that's 90s all, uh, androgynous yeah. icons so I mean he's yeah. fucking with it any kind any kind of way you look at it he has a great quote which I love which is heterosexuals have fucked up the screen so completely that there's hardly any room for us to kiss there Marlowe outs the past so why can't we out the present that's really the only message this play has in every single one of his films he's drawing out this like recontextualizing a historical event that was really queer when it first happened and then it just sort of got heterosexualized for lack of a better term and he's trying to bring these queer stories back to the forefront which Bruce that's kind of something you've been doing with your work as well what's the what's the desire to look back and kind of re-queer I mean obviously these more historical like either plays or, or films from the past the homosexuality the queer aspects of it are 
are, are forced to be subtext for good reason. I mean, because of because of the there wasn't any queer activism. There wasn't you weren't allowed to to represent homosexuality in any kind of blatant way. So whenever it was referenced, it had to be in some kind of code. The bachelor way, uncle. You know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, the bellboys, the, the, the concierge, you know, was always a, a gay character, but never explicitly. For example, when I made my film Hustler White, um, I was referencing films like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and um, Sunset Boulevard. I mean, which are kind of, co- I mean, uh, William Holden is essentially kind of a, a hustler, mm-hmm. you know, in, uh, in in Sunset Boulevard. And it is kind of this relationship, the that he has with with Gloria Swanson is kind of coded as a, a kind of like a queer relationship, and whatever happened to Baby Jane is one of, is although there's no you know overt queer elements in it, it has some of the most queer characters like Victor Bono. Yeah, I was going to say Victor Bono is kind of on the verge, yeah. <laughs> and his mother and his relationship yeah. with his mother. Yeah. And but then just the, it's become one you know one of the all time camp classics that that is a. a, a a sacred text for gay men who are especially uh, 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 who appreciate camp, you know, but to make it overt and kind of make it like very demonstrably queer uh, for me is just a way of, it's almost like a, a way of recuperating the past mm. and kind of reconfiguring uh, it. Um, so you're almost like retroactively outing the films, mm. which is uh, I think a, a great strategy. And, and it, it, it's like uh, also pushing it in the direction of, um, uh, like I said, for me, uh, like pornogra- the pornographic. So um, there's always those limitations on mainstream cinema, the Hayes Code and everything that that, um, that made the representation very kind of uh, way more chaste than it should have been. I mean, pre-Hayes goes codes movies are very you know raunchy and 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 kind of um highly sexual and th- and then that was kind of repressed you know and that's what the 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 gay liberation movement was all about it was about um kind of being as i said very unapologetic about about um gay sex mm. and just and showing it very explicitly so that's one of my strategies as well just as a pure provocation or um you know to like i said to to uh, uh, to challenge liberal uh, kind of tolerance, ideas of, of liberal tolerance, mm-hmm. which can be almost as annoying as fascist. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, one of, the, <laughs> one of the rallying cries of the gay movement was we're here, we're queer, get used to it, right? Like, it's just, it's, it's not yeah. going away. It's always been here. Let's just, you know, yeah. deal with it. Well, let's get into uh, our next film, which is Here to Stay, although hard to find, which is unfortunate. It is Young Soul Rebels, and that's coming up after the break. Hey, Cam. Uh, caveat before we start. Uh, I appear in some Hollywood Suite original content, and you are one of the writers and producers of a lot of that content, and you appear in them as well. Uh, shows like A to Z and the Year in Film TV series, but I'm really proud of being a part of them because I feel that, like this podcast, uh, knowing more about the context of the movies we love really enriches the enjoyment of those movies. I think it's also a, a great reminder that like film is such an unusual medium where so many artists are involved. I think you're somebody who loves to dig into producers uh, and like how they affect things you know a producer was obsessed with an actor and that's why they're in X or Y how one director made a pillow fort to get away from his producer when he was throwing tantrums sure Uh, John Peters really wanted to see a giant mechanical spider on screen these are all like important points (laughs) of film history that that get lost because frankly they're not the front facing people exactly and I think all of the Hollywood Suite original content brings these stories that a lot of people haven't heard before to the forefront. And not only are they going to learn about the movies they already love, they'll probably find a bunch of new favorites. And they'll be guided by reliable film experts and thorough, well-curated interviews and behind-the-scenes footage. And you can find out more about Hollywood Suite original programming at hollywoodsuite.ca. And now, back to the show. 
I love a good club scene in any movie, especially when it feels like the real thing. I love watching real people dance, and the club scenes in Isaac Julian's Young Soul Rebels are beautifully captured, perhaps in part because of the director's experience in documentary and experimental film. They're also contained within a solid murder mystery framework and a snapshot of 70s London's subculture conflicts, which has a lot to do with the time it was made in the 90s. Now, Cam, what is this one about? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a surprisingly complex movie, but kind of packaged in a in a much more uh, fun uh, theatrical format uh, compared to Edward II, I would say. Much more uh, Hollywood, almost. Uh, this is the story. The story kicks off with the murder of a, a young man who's cruising. Uh, and unbeknownst to his murderer, uh, there is evidence uh, on a boombox. Uh, this falls into the hands of uh, two pirate radio DJs at the time, uh, Chris and Kaz, who are, uh, you know, part of the Afro-Caribbean diaspora. They're kind of second generation. Uh, and they are fighting to have soul music available at all in uh, a London that is increasingly, you know, conservative. Uh, and basically, they have two two places to look. It's either conservative radio or the punk movement and are kind of finding no place for themselves uh, as black men who one of whom is uh, gay and one of whom is kind of a gender non-conforming straight man a little bit effeminate and they they find their love in soul music but they kind of have to hustle to make it happen these two plots kind of come and go it's one of those great noirs where like this would be easily solved if it was not marginalized people uh, they can't really turn to the black community because it's a gay black man they can't really turn to the gay community because it's a black man they definitely can't turn to the police because they're <laughs> black uh, so they kind of through various machinations they get it from all sides yeah, yeah totally and I mean it's, it's a very interesting as you say it's an interesting look I think it's set in 1977 at the Jubilee as you said Bruce because it's kind of in conversation with Jubilee saying like sure there was this punk movement but where was uh, the space for us and then I also think as you say Becky this is kind of an interesting look at just before this kind of explosion of subcultures and bifurcation so you see a queer love story between like a black soul guy and a British punk which kind of leads you to think about like oi punk and two-tone ska that would come and then you also see kind of the bifurcation of the skinhead movement where the punks are beginning to clash with the national front and you will see that sort of tear things apart once Thatcher takes power in 1979 so it's uh, you know there's, there's a lot to lean into from a 1991 perspective uh, and it's a great plot and this also just denies that it's a very joyful movie that is actually as much as it's a thriller it is just a love of this music and DJing and uh, black culture. It ends with culture. them dancing and I love it. I love <laughs> yes. that it's just the two of them dancing and then everybody joins them and you're just mm. and the music in this is so joyous and it's soul right it makes you feel good at the end it's really a beautiful film. Yeah and, and like we said before this is also a great expose on kind of that emerging Vivian Westwood punk culture and how some of it just had massive blind spots and they even make fun of like how much did you pay for that shirt you know capitalist crap metro radio shut up Billy spending 20 quid on t-shirts from Vivian Westwood's got nothing to do with capitalism hmm? it has to do with homoerotica nicked homoerotica actually like it oh love it it's like anarchy courtesy of EMI but he counters by saying yeah but it's like you know the two gay Cowboys, right? It's the yes. two. It's the famous image of the two gay cowboys with their dicks out of Yeah, and, uh, and he does claim that he so, shoplifted it. So, <laughs> that, <laughs> so that, yeah. some credit there book. too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The irreverence with which uh, Isaac sort of uh, approaches everything, mm -hmm. like and there's no sacred cows. Everything is uh, is up for uh, critique. Um, it, it's a very uh, complex movie. There's a lot of nuances. It's a movie that percolated for a long time. He did not find funding for this from anybody at any point. And then in the early 90s, when they were starting to like be a little more generous with funding bodies, um, that's how it got. And so it was originally conceived in the 80s and didn't get made until uh, until 91. So this is a movie that percolated for a long time. So what yeah, I think what you're seeing is exactly what he intended, intended for you to see as complex and sort of, as you mentioned, Cam, bifurcating as it is. And there's some criticisms that the film loses track, that there's too much going on. And I would disagree. I think it's that's exactly what it's intended to do. There's supposed to be all these different things going on. There is, but I think, I mean, I love this film. Absolutely love this film. It was a big influence on me. The production design is insane. It's beautiful. The, the colors. colors. Ugh, yeah. the colors all those primary, color, primary colors, the red, 
sort of the red mm -hmm. and yellow and green of the Jamaican flag and, and then and the red, yellow and green of the stop yeah. close up on the stop. Light, you know, and just, but uh, there's just the, 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 the motif of, of the use of red and yellow. And it's just such a gorgeous film. And, and it's such a sexy film too. I mean, incredibly mm -hmm. sexy film. Um, all the actors are stunning and, <laughs> you know, narratively, I think, I, I think it does kind of good in the way. I mean, I think the film, it is a bit too ambitious because, you know, trying to interweave a, a murder mystery with all political commentary, with all the events that are going on historically at the time, with the race issues. I mean, it's, I think it slows it, the film down mm -hmm. in, in a weird way. It's a, it's a bit disjointed. I would say it's like a flawed masterpiece or something, but it's like, um, but I, I do think he kind of took on a, a bit too much. It, it, for it to work as just a, a pure narrative uh, kind of experience, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, yeah, and I do think that that's when you talk about it. It's uh, weirdly, I think it's probably a different story if you're in Europe, but in North America, this is kind of lost. There yeah. is not not a lot of ways to watch it. And it does feel like, you know, the significance of a guy who essentially, uh, with a small group, carved out black filmmaking in England uh, for his, like, big crowd-pleasing hit, to be not on Criterion or something, I think does say something to the fact that people either think that, you know, the thriller is solved a little easily, <laughs> the guy just falls into his own fire, or, uh, right. you know, that that maybe they wanted a little more exploration of the relationship between the two friends, or, you know, X or Y. I think, yeah, it is a bit clumsy, narratively, you know, towards the end, yeah, with the, mm. the, the, the kind of denouement. The, and, and even, like, you know, playing the tape at the... Mm -hmm. in the park at the at the jubilee or uh, uh, celebration at the end is a bit packed you know it's yeah. like it doesn't really it's cathartic like, who I cares? love it <laughs> yeah. it's cathartic, but why you know why yeah. is he playing the tape who who's was that for Kaz is it Kaz yeah. um was yeah. that for for Kaz to hear and if so you know that's a very strange way or, or you know to make him hear the tape so and there's so much going on in terms of like you were saying about you know the pirate radio mm -hmm. and the against the, the conservative broadcaster is a whole other element um, narratively on top of it. And I mean, it's, it's an, like I said, it's an incredibly ambitious film and, you know, he really admirably tries to like weave together all those, all those issues and, and narrative threads and everything. But ultimately uh, I, I'm not surprised it didn't work on a more commercial level, I guess. And I, I'm curious about the budget of the film because it, the, the sound mix is, is, is a bit problematic you know it's like the mm -hmm. i don't know that's just, as a filmmaker i was noticing that the foley was very very kind of like pronounced in the movie i wonder what kind of post sure. uh budget he had um I, I mean those crowd scenes are are, are very ambitious yeah. both in, in the club and the and the park i mean that's like a, a cast of you know hundreds and hundreds of people and he really it, it is a, i think he did a lot with like probably a, a limited budget uh, and was there a problem with the uh, music rights as there there rights? might be i could see that being yeah. a big release yeah. that's what we find uh like working at hollywood suite a lot of films that disappear it's just because they have complex soundtracks unfortunately but yeah you know. i mean my first two features uh we didn't get any music rights <laughs> whatsoever yeah. no, no skin right now at that time you didn't think about it so much before it was before there was e and o yeah uh you know contracts and people weren't so like you know fascist about about uh copyright you know so i mean technically those two films my, they're extremely low budget and pornographic so that also limits their their kind of distribution but um the music rights you know they had to be released kind of somewhat under the radar mm -hmm. so as not to kind of attract the attention of, of uh, yeah, the, <laughs> I mean, I also think that that's when those pesky owners of the music. <laughs> I, I mean, they when you talk about the like <laughs> the the explosion of regional queer film festivals, I think that's a part of it too. Because if you have a film society or a festival, you can show sort of an underrated or like an unrated, oh, sure. pseudo legal film, yeah. and get away with it. But these ones, yeah. Uh, yeah, when they're stretching, I'll tell you, it's a it's a one point three million pound budget apparently. But I think oh, wow. what you're saying at that time was pretty big. Yeah. yeah. Though I also think what you were saying before with the, <laughs> the slick visuals, I think that makes it look like, 
you know, a, a major feature film, but he was probably, like you say, fighting against uh, like very tight resources. The original trailer as well, just thinking of like the release and who would have seen this is very interesting because they lean into the murder aspect of it. They don't say it's the murder of a young of gay Aflac person. They just say, you know, that this person was murdered. The cruising, the cruising. Mm. He was really leaning heavily into cruising there. Yeah, right? you yeah. don't. In the yeah, there's uh, a bit of queer coding and that you do. They do have a clip of the scene where they're putting on their tight vinyl trousers. So you've yeah. got that with them. I love that. Thing. He's obsessed with the uh, the over the top shots. There's a lot of mm. like um, shots uh, straight down, and which are complicated and expensive shots to set up, mm. you know. So and they look great. <laughs> it's, I love I love a put yeah, on yeah. pants scene. It's I'm very into it. Um, but the other thing they yeah. they have in it um, is they don't have any uh, any men kissing men, but they have Chris kissing Tracy uh, quite passionately. So I was mm. like, interesting. So there's they very- come really close. Yeah, Kaz and. Uh, uh, and Chris, they come quite close. <laughs> yeah. No, but you get a whole sex scene between uh, Kaz and uh, and yeah. Billy Bud, right? Like that with, is- an, with an orgasm. Mm-hmm. Although the orgasm is off, off screen, um, you can hear her orgasm after the camera pans away. But yeah, yeah. and I also think you're you're seeing a like. The other, you know, uh, thing to speak of is like three white people is there's always been this problem with like black gay filmmakers specifically, I think being like neither this nor that, where sometimes the the black canon doesn't pick them up. If you look at Isaac Julian actually did quite a lot better than probably his American contemporary Marlon Riggs, who was much more Mm. resigned to kind of poetic, experimental, small, short films. Yeah, although... You know, looking for Langston is yeah, and, and Marlon Riggs' work are more are more kind of uh, compatible. Yeah, but, um, I mean, you know, I, I know that Jarman was talking about how you know my beautiful Londa Red and uh, Stephen Frears. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I was hugely influenced by my beautiful Londa Red and uh, pr- prick, uh, prick up your ears, ears, yeah, and which were you know late in late eighties, and, and then um, and it's interesting that I, I mean Francis Barber who plays um, Kaz's um, sister, I think. Anyway, she was in, she played Joe Orton's mm-hmm. uh, sister. Those films, and My Beautiful Andrette is, you know, it's hard not to see the relationship in Young Soul Rebels between the white punk and Chris as as kind of a nod or kind of influenced by the relationship between Daniel Day-Lewis and, and East, the Indian mm-hmm. East yeah. Indian actor. Oh, for sure. And those films are, you know, I think Isaac was trying to push it mm-hmm. in, in or kind of provocative way. Like, for example, when the brother, is it the brother? I think it's Chris's brother mm-hmm. who owns the garage. Yeah. And there's that kind of almost gratuitous shower scene mm-hmm. where he's taking, he's taking his shower in the uh, in the garage, you know, uh, which is somehow totally visible to everyone. <laughs> yeah. It's an amazing, like, erotic kind of uh, scene. But, but uh, for a mainstream audience, that'd be like, hmm, you know, yeah. why is he showing that? <laughs> yeah. Like, how? How is that happening? Yeah, it's what Gus Van Sant does that all the time too. Mm-hmm. He has like in um, who who was also a, uh, started out a, kind of as a queer new queer cinema filmmaker. Like uh, in Milk, for example, he has um, he has uh, Dan White uh, in a very erotic shower scene, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or or in an Elephant that Dylan and Klebold mm-hmm. are in the shower together. You're like, what's going on yeah, here? All of my you own know, private yeah. Idaho, which is this year. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an earmark of the queer, yeah. of, of queer, you know, filmmakers to try to push a homoerotic kind of like subtext really far and kind of eroticize it as a provocation. Mm. And I, yeah, I think what you're saying is true that like Julian was kind of making a more commercial play, but seeding in this stuff. Because I think a lot of, uh, yes. I know that a lot of like black critics really also respond to the what seems like kind of a small moment but the like intra afro-caribbean kind of fighting about glass closets like you know like they the the people knew that this young man who was killed was having gay sex but they kind of just turned a blind eye but now that he's dead they kind of act like he deserves it but he was their friend yeah you know yeah 
Now, here's a question for you. Um, where do you feel the punk rock movement and the the like new queer cinema movement sort of intersect? So we're looking at like the rise of it in the like the mid to late seventies for the punk rock movement, but then you have these filmmakers who very much experienced that within that time, now old enough to like make movies and create their own kind of aspect of be influenced of it. Where do those things kind of meet together? Well, I mean, for me, I you always have to I always have to distinguish between UK punk and mm. or North American hardcore. I mean um punk which are completely different animals really i mean there's some crossover but you know the uk punk movement with the sex pistols and everything was much more um like the critique in young soul rebels it was much more fashion it was much more kind of like uh, a, an obvious provocation it was much more based on kind of like extreme style but without uh, but but having said that it was also complicated because of the the racial mixture, the the kind of the soul boys and the suede heads and the and the punks, and then you had the the sharp punks, the skinheads against racial prejudice, and you had like the 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 fascist punks who were also gay, you know, or or secretly gay. So I mean, it was a much more kind of it was an interesting mix. But in the U.S., it was very very much more very politically uh, motivated in terms of like the anti Reagan mm. movement. And it was much more a kind of a hardcore leftist political uh, expression, also expressed in style, but much more directly political, like Reagan bands, like Reagan Youth, and or you know the Dead Kennedys, or you know they were they were very uh, specifically political, radical leftist kind of um, strategies and and kind of emphasis. Whereas, uh, of course, the, there was also the complication of the skinheads, and then certain hardcore punks became kind of right wing. Mm. I mean, there was Harry Krishna punks and, you know, kind of <laughs> <laughs> strange, like the Cro-Mags. And it went, and it went on much longer. I mean, the punk movement seemed to be a briefer kind of um, movement. I mean, and then was replaced by a lot of other stuff, you know, the, the whole blitz kid movement and everything. I mean, my friend Kevin Hagee made a film recently called, that's great called tramps, which is all about that period of, mm. of, um, of leading up to punk and and how the punks were kind of the least interesting uh, <laughs> aspect of, of that. For me, it was a huge uh, American hardcore punk was a, a, a huge influence, and I used a lot of American Canadian punk bands, their music in my first three movies, and um, it um, it was much more uh, like I said, directly political, and but but. Uh, maybe much more homophobic mm. as well. I mean, the original roots of SoCal punk in the 80s was very queer. And there was a lot of um, gender fluidity and, and a kind of questioning of like sex roles and identity. But uh, there was a lot of homophobia in the scene as well, which is something that I was really motivated by with my fanzines and my early films was to kind of like present a queer punk context, uh, unapologetic, explicit, gay sex to to show in a punk context mm. like in, in punk bars and 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 venues and to say to them oh you're so radical you're so politically radically <laughs> and you can't even like watch like they're, they're as bad they're as bad as the liberals you know don't flaunt it don't flaunt it you know so that that was part of my agenda <laughs> personally i don't know maybe yeah. if that's in the other queer uh nuclear cinema there's a desire to provoke, obviously, with Jarman. Like, he's as in-your-face as he can be, considering his funding body. This one here feels like it kind of wants to take you a bit by the hand and be like, welcome to these people's lives. Like, there is much more of, like, an open-door policy with this one. It just feels, especially because it, uh, one of the one of the things a lot of critics say is that it rides the line between the righteous anger, and as there should be, especially with what was going on with, you know, Section 28 and all that. But it's also, like... And this is something that's often talked about with uh, with lesbians uh, films is that the lesbian always dies at the end. They always have to be punished. This always has to happen. That doesn't happen here. They get, uh, for lack of a better term, everybody gets a happy ending. They get to dance at the end. The murder is solved. You know, it's it's much more joyous and ergo, you know, there's an accessibility to it for a mainstream where it's like, oh, I'm not going to sit in this dour movie for whatever, which is always interesting to me that like, is it better to show things how they are or is it better to show, you know, you have that little bit of hope in the in the mix of it so that it's more quote-unquote mm -hmm. accessible mm -hmm. I would, it, it's interesting that there really isn't any lesbian representation in mm -hmm. in the film 
I don't know if that's like a sign of the times. Uh, uh, I mean, most of the nuclear cinema filmmakers were gay men, um, except for Rose Trosh mm-hmm. was one who made Go Fish. And, uh, but um, it was a very, and that was indicative of the larger gay movement in general, which was much more, which was sort of uh, really focused on middle, more middle-class white kind of uh, gay experience and kind of marginalize the trans and the, and the lesbians. And I think it is a, it, it is a very hopeful movie. I mean, in general, I mean, it's, it's so full of kind of passion and political verve and, and kind of like, um, and romance. I mean, it's, it's, it's so romantic about the, about the queer experience and, 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 and the whole interracial kind of thing in the movie is really, um, ahead of its time, I think. Mm. I think that's the perfect place to end this episode. So Cameron Maitland, I want to thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. And I will say, just because I always get the chance to briefly embarrass and promote our guest stuff, follow Bruce on all uh, social platforms because you're very good at picking through both queer film history, but then also, you know, homoerotic elements of non-queer film history. And I think reminding people of titles like Making Love and how, you know, it might seem corny now, but is significant and interesting in its own way. And I think it's just fun to have you on Instagram and see that stuff every day, you know? Yeah, I do it a lot on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, and I did write a whole series of art- articles for talkhouse.com okay. uh, about my kind of, uh, uh, my favorite underappreciated films and a lot of that is um talking about gay queer subtext mm-hmm. and, and we reference your article yeah, on looking so. for mr goodbar when we talk about it this season because it is it was a great article we liked it very much oh, cool. <laughs> bruce LeBruce, the the one the only thank you so much for joining us it was such a pleasure to have you and have you enlighten the children uh how can people obviously on your your please give us your social mm-hmm. handles and tell people how they can see more of your work um good luck i mean <laughs> 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 Listen, if you put it put in the name and the date and find the right pornographic website sometime. <laughs> More recent films have been on Amazon Prime and I, I don't know how many are up there now. Mm. Um, uh, even my latest film, San Narcisse, was removed from Amazon Prime after six months for offensive content. So I wow. don't know what that was all about. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm on Instagram. It's all Bruce LaBruce. Like, um, just search for Bruce LaBruce on Instagram, on, on Twitter. It's kind of the perils of the queer filmmaker, the low-budget filmmaker, the pornographic filmmaker. They're on all different different distributors, different platforms, different... Uh, it's kind of like you have to do a bit of detective work to... to, to yeah. It is well worth seeking out, especially like if you haven't seen No Skin on My Ass, it's not only an important uh, element of new queer cinema, it's an important element of Canadian cinema, so which yeah. we always encourage. You need to see it. And it's full of lesbians. Yeah. <laughs> like those other ones. I, love I have to say, I was, I, I was one of the few filmmakers who was representing lesbians hard, hardcore in my, in my 90s films. So. Yeah. All right. And you can join us in two weeks where we're going to dish some dirt. In fact, we've got someone who was there for the Luke and Laura years as we look at Delirious and Soap Dish. The episode's going to feature actor Philip Tanzini, and it's going to be a lot of fun. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on 4 HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cameron Maitland and Bruce LaBruce as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. <laughs>